God be in our heads and in our understandings. God be in our eyes and in our looking. God be in our mouths and in our speaking. God be in our hearts and in our thinking. God be at our ends and at our departing. Amen. Well, thank you for being here today as we discuss the topic of forgiveness. Uh, This is an important topic for those of us who are Christians, um, and I hope that today will be beneficial. Our schedule for today is that um, we'll have three 45-minute sessions, um, hopefully with about 10-minute break in between each one. Um, And then around 11.45, we'll take a break, and then we'll have uh, Holy Communion at noon. Um, And it's a votive mass for the intention of the remission of sins. We'll talk more about that as we go, but it it dovetails very well with what we're discussing for today. Um, So that's our tentative plan. Of course, we may have to uh, ad-lib a little bit, depending on whether we go a little long or a little short in our sessions. Knowing us, we might go a little long. Um, Just a guess, though. To begin our time together, I want to tell you a story. It's probably a story that you remember very well. On June 17th of 2015, uh, white supremacist Dylan Roof walked into Emmanuel African and Methodist Episcopal Church, participated in a Bible study that was being conducted there. And then as the attendees moved into a time of prayer, Roof stood up and he began shooting. He ended up killing a total of nine people. And at his court appearance... Uh, the family members of the victims were allowed to address this man who had barbarically murdered their loved ones, and it was quite a show of forgiveness. Um, The daughter of Ethel Lance, a 70-year-old victim of Ruth, told him, you took something really precious for me. I will never talk to her again, but I forgive you and have mercy on your soul. You hurt me. You hurt a lot of people, but God forgives you. I forgive you. Anthony Thompson said, I forgive you and my family forgives you, but we would like you to take this opportunity to repent, change your ways. Now, the fact that these Christians could accomplish the incredibly arduous task of forgiving someone who had ruthlessly slaughtered their family members without remorse shows the power, I think, of grace and forgiveness. And so today, I hope that our retreat, our time together, can help us better understand how we can be a people capable of forgiving even to the extent of such a heinous act. Now, Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's helpful to think back to the first sin. The snake wrongs Eve by deceiving her. Eve then wrongs Adam by pressuring him to eat the fruit. Adam wrongs Eve by not stepping in. While the snake was tempting her because Adam had been the one who was entrusted with the command. And then, of course, we can say all three of the parties there, the serpent, the man and the woman, wronged God because they disobeyed him. And when God confronts them with their disobedience, what's their response? It's to play a blame game, right? Adam points the finger at Eve. Eve points the finger at the serpent. And what this story tells us, above all things, is that that. Well, yes, this is the origin of sin. This is often what sin looks like. So the fall of Adam and Eve happened in time and space, and it affects us today. But the fall of Adam and Eve continues to happen over and over and over again. Um, There's no peace between human beings, and that's a cycle that continues even to today. And so in this state, there can be no peace between each other, but there's also no peace between humanity and God. Because our sin is wrapped up in these cycles, pure justice would sever our relations with people, 
All of us have wronged others. All of us have been wronged by others. And while we do need a justice system, it's clear that not every wrong can be litigated and not every justice can be served. We would have no time to live if that's all that we were preoccupied. But that also extends to our relationship with God. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 130, verse 3, If thou, Lord, shouldn't mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? None of us could approach God because of our sin, of our wronging him. So we're stuck in these cycles, these really toxic cycles of sin, of wronging each other, of being wrong, perpetuating over and over again. And there's really only one solution to those cycles, and that is forgiveness. But what does forgiveness entail? This morning, we're going to cover the topic of forgiveness over the course of these three sessions. In our first session, we're going to be mapping the contours of forgiveness. We're going to talk about what its antithesis is. We're going to talk about um, the conditions that necessitate forgiveness, and finally, what it means to forgive. In our second session, we'll discuss God's nature, the forgiveness that he extends to us, and the means by which we receive his forgiveness. And our third and final session will be called Go and Do Likewise, as we discuss how to apply what we've hopefully learned in these first two sessions in our own lives. Now, what is the opposite of forgiveness? It's always helpful to define a word by looking at its opposites. What is the opposite of forgiveness? Anger, bitterness. bitterness, Absolutely. Resentment. Resentment. Holding a grudge. Holding a grudge. A lot of these are words for almost the same thing, right? I, I think resentment may be the, the most uh, concise word here, but that certainly includes all the other things that have been said. Resentment, according to Merriam-Webster, is persistent ill will at something regarded as a wrong, insult, or injury. Resentment can then express itself in different ways. So there can be a sort of outward lashing out because of resentment either at the person who has wronged you or it could be indirectly at others who become a kind of collateral damage, right? So we see the direct lashing out in the parable of the unforgiving servant, which is one we'll come back to a few times today. You know, the unforgiving servant who owes his king a large debt and the king forgives him the debt. And so the man goes out and uh, finds someone who owes him a couple bucks, picks him up by the neck and says, you better pay me what you owe me. And the guy says, I don't have the money right now. So he has him thrown in prison which, of course, uh, gets him thrown in prison uh, by, the, uh, by the king when he finds out. Um, so he, he's lashing out at someone who owes him something, right? And, of course, the irony of the story is he doesn't understand um, how minuscule the debt is compared to what he has owed. So there's a kind of direct lashing out at someone who has wronged us, but there's also a kind of indirect lashing out. This is what happens when we take resentment and we tamp it down in ourselves. We try and hold it in. It's like burying nuclear waste or something, you know. It's put it down really tight in a ball in it. But then, of course, it will end up working its way out in our behaviors. This is actually what happened with Dylan Roof. Um, he allowed his wicked racism to poison his brain to such an extent that he felt a need to shoot innocent bystanders for perceived wrongs of one race against another. So those people at Emmanuel Church were good people in the wrong place at the wrong time because he had decided that he had had enough. He couldn't keep it in anymore, and so he ended up uh, lashing out at the wrong people. 
Now, what are the signs of resentment? How do you know if you're a resentful person or if this is an issue that you're struggling with? There is a doctor, Dr. Dan Brennan, who, um, who isolates seven different signs of resentment. So the first sign of resentment is, that, is, is a recurring negative feeling. It uh, could be anger or frustration or hostility or bitterness, some of those same words we were talking about just a minute ago. could be hard feelings or uneasiness towards the person or the situation that wronged you. So we get these negative feelings. Another thing is an inability to stop thinking about the event to the point that you become obsessive about it, which is why it's often been said that resentment is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. It becomes all-consuming if it's not checked. I once got a B on a paper, and I still wake up in the middle of the night sometimes (laughs) thinking about that. Anyways, Um, so there are also feelings of regret or remorse, which usually involves some sort of self-blame. Resentment can also, be, can also involve uh, negative feelings towards your own self. There's also a fear of avoidance, or fear or avoidance, I mean. So anxiety uh, at or total retreat from a situation that may be directly related to or trigger feelings that parallel the original event in question. And one thing we do know, and and resentment can certainly be a result of trauma, and one thing we know about trauma now is that when you sort of relive a traumatic experience, the same neurons in your brain fire as what fired when you had the original experience. And that's true of a lot of memories anyways. It's like, um, I don't know if you ever have a memory that you have a certain scent attached to it, but if you remember that event, you can can smell the, the smell. Right, um, and so uh, that just kind of shows the same principle. Those neurons fire. So, if this is something that we're struggling with, then you might uh, feel those same feelings again. You might relive the the wrong um, again and again, um, based on certain situations that you find yourself in. There are also tense relationships. Somebody said holding a grudge a few minutes ago. That's that's certainly a part of that. Um, so if you if you are in a relationship with someone and they wrong you and you maybe are able to in the moment kind of push it off, but then you hold that grudge long term, um, it will eventually uh, make the relationship tense, right? Uh, you have to start walking on eggshells shells around each other. Um, if you say the wrong thing, the other person might you know, kind of bite your head off and you think, where did that come from? Um, it could be acting passive aggressive uh, towards someone or even um, ending a relationship altogether. So we have tense relationships. We have another, uh, another symptom is to feel invisible or inadequate, to feel powerless. Um, because when we're wrong, that's often how we feel, right? Somebody has, has taken advantage of us. Someone has, um, has overstepped their bounds. And that, in that moment, we feel powerless. And um, if we live with that, if we don't deal with it, uh, then it can leave us feeling that kind of, uh, kind of invisibleness or, 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 um, or powerlessness long term. Um, and then finally, uh, the last symptom that, that Dr. Brennan uh, isolates is that it's an inability to let go of anger, which forces us to hold on to bitterness. And I think it's important to remember, we become what we behold. Um, so if we are constantly uh, looking at or, or bringing up knowingly or unknowingly feelings of bitterness towards someone, we risk becoming very bitter people. It's like when you tell your kid, you know, don't, uh, don't frown because, you, you know, your face will kind of freeze in that, uh, in that way. Of course, that's not really true, but there is a sense in which it kind of is true. You know, I mean, if your brain is used to harboring bitterness, 
naturally you will become a more bitter person. Now, where does resentment come from then? It's, I think it's a pretty universal experience that we've all had a, at least for a time. Many Christians think that resentment comes, well, at least in its original form, came from Satan's tempting of Adam and Eve uh, from a place of resentment. So, so the original resentment is, is in the devil. Um, Lucifer, of course, was the highest angelic being. But then God made Adam and Eve as the sort of pinnacle of creation. So many uh, Christian thinkers kind of deduce that um, Satan may have felt replaced um, based on the creation of, of humanity. And this causes him to develop some sort of hatred towards our primal parents. He wants to be the sort of pinnacle of everything. Um, Adam and Eve are made the pinnacle of everything. And so he has coming from a place of envy, of jealousy, of resentment. Which means that... Pride, which is really the main sin of Lucifer, is at the root of resentment. Lucifer's self-estimation was so out of proportion that he attempted to displace God with himself. He knew better, right? He deserved this. He deserved that. Resentment, that persistent feeling of ill will directed towards someone who's wronged us, whether it's in an actual sense or in a perceived sense, is, if it goes unchecked, a symptom of pride, or at least it can be. Pride is when we aim higher than what we are, according to Thomas Aquinas. We overstep because we're proud. Based on Psalm 118.51, Aquinas concludes that the greatest sin, of, sin is pride because all other vices represent attempts to run away from God while pride tries to stand up over and against God, right? So there's, it's the difference between fleeing God and telling God, I actually know better than you. Quoting from the Deuterocanonical book of Sirach 1015, he goes on to say, pride is the beginning of all sin. And he means that pride opens the door to any other sin because pride scorns being subject to God. So how is resentment related to pride? Well, Hebrews 12, 14 to 15 tells us, follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you and thereby many be defiled. In other words, bitterness, which I would correlate with resentment here, prevents one from extending the grace one has received. By choosing to withhold grace, one plays the part of the prophet Jonah, who upon seeing the repentance of the Assyrians after his preaching, seems really rather disappointed. And if you remember the story, he's got the little tree that grows to provide him shade, which withers. And rather than caring for the souls of these poor Assyrian people, Jonah lays down on the ground and cries because his one comfort has been taken away. He has no shade to rest under, right? It's very dramatic. Um, but, but it shows you just how off he is because his resentment towards the Assyrians really skews his judgment. And so resentment allows one to become, sometimes physically, but often emotionally or mentally, uh, the judge, jury, and executioner of the one who has wronged us, or at least we, who we perceive has wronged us. So the opposite of forgiveness is resentment, but let's plumb the depths for a moment about what makes forgiveness necessary. For this, I think it's helpful to go back to Romans 3.23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Sin has two dimensions. There's a vertical dimension of sin, 
I'm sorry, vertical dimension of sin. And there's a horizontal dimension of sin, right? The vertical sense of sin is, means that we commit, when we commit a sin, we do it against God. Sin, of course, doesn't affect God because God isn't dependent on us as creatures. So Satan may have thought he was overthrowing God, but of course, there's no actual way for Satan to have done that. But in depriving God of his honor, we do violate justice, which is a virtue, and therefore do not act towards God how we should, especially given the relationship between us and God, that between creator and creature. Because God is our creator and we're creatures, we owe him everything, right? All of our lives should be offered to God as a response to the fact that he made us. When we sin, it's important to remember that sin is always a lack. It's always a negative. It's always an ethical abscess, which means that it's a failure to render God what we ought. Now, there is a horizontal aspect to sin because our, all of our sin is directed against or affects others. In fact, there are no private sins. This becomes something that um, I think is more prevalent for us today, uh, this idea that well, I, there are some sins that are public and there are some sins that are, are private. Um, there are certainly sins that are done in secret that not everybody knows about, but um, the idea of private seems rather uh, enlightenment-based. Um, it requires us to consider an individual as somehow separate from their larger social relations. But to be an individual requires social relations um, in which we shape others and we're shaped by others. Um, and so what this means is that there really are no purely individual actions, right? What I do will affect you and vice versa um, if we're in relationship with each other. So this under understanding of how the individual and corporate are intimately connected should be more heightened for Christians because we have large swaths of scripture that tell us that to be a member of the church is to be a member of what? A larger body, right? We're parts of a body. And what St. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, 26 is that if one member suffers, all members suffer with it. So if your body has an unhealthy foot, well, that can affect more than just your foot, right? Or if you have a, a heart problem, that can affect more than just your heart, right? Uh, everything is connected in the body. And that's true of the church in particular, but it's really true of social relations in general. Um, so we have, to, we have to be aware that there really is no private sin. Now, there are some sins where it's probably best not to tell everybody about it because that might cause certain scandals, right? But that sin is really a problem. That sin is really a problem. And, and what we see is that sin has a cascading effect, right? When someone is wronged, if I, if I perceive that you wrong me, it's much easier for me to retaliate in an attempt to satisfy my lust for vengeance, right? You've wronged me. You've hurt my pride. I'm, uh, you've hurt my ego, right? And so now I need, to, I need to respond. I mean, think about the Hatfield and McCoy's story, you know? I mean, it, it happens with one wrong, right? Uh, the one family kills uh, one of the soldiers from the other family. He had served the Union instead of the Confederacy. Um, and then you get a death spiral of vengeance and perpetually wronging. There's a great story. Uh, a, a Jewish man gets on an airplane, and he sits down and he realizes he's sat between uh, two Palestinians. And so he takes off his shoes. He decides to relax. He looks at, the, at his seatmates and he says, hey, do you, either of you want a Coke? And they both say, yeah, sure, I would love a Coke. 
So he gets up and goes to get him cokes. While he's gone, the Palestinians take his shoes and they spit in him. When he comes back, he sits down, he puts his feet in his shoes, he realizes what's happened. He goes, how long does this have to go on, this, this enmity between our peoples, this, this spitting in shoes and peeing in cokes? <laughs> Here's the real problem, right? We are mimetic creatures. Mimetic means that we, we uh, imitate right? We, we're creatures that imitate what we see, right? We see this from a very, very early stage in childhood, right? Rowan is in a stage right now where he's repeating everything that he hears for good or bad, right? <laughs> Jude also will do that too. Um, it, it really hit me when Jude was little um, and he picked up his, uh, my phone or Caroline's phone. And, you know, he had, he had never really held a phone before, but he had seen us hold our phones. And so he's staring at it and he's, you know, tapping on the screen and he's looking at And just the way that he so singularly focused in on the phone, just like we do, but he didn't know what he was focusing on, right? I mean, he wasn't reading anything or watching something. He just was copying us looking at our phones. Um, that was kind of scary for me if just how, how much they imitate, right? What they pick up on. All humans imitate. We become what we behold, right? This is why we have to be careful about what kind of films we watch, what kind of books we read, etc. Uh, not necessarily to be moral Puritans, but to be aware that what we consume really does shape us in ways that we may not be aware of all the time. So since we're born in a world full of sin, full of wrongs, our tendency is to emulate those. We see fallenness and we imitate it. And of course, it should be said that, that the problem is not simply that we have bad role models. The problem is that all of us are infected by what we call original sin, which is like a disease that prevents us from being what God made us to be. Original sin means that we're sick. It means that we're unable to live justly as God intended. And it means that we will fall short of his standard. So we're stuck in cycles. We're wronged and we wrong. So we wrong and we're wronged, right? Someone cuts us off in traffic, so we might make a certain gesture at them or say some certain words at them. A waiter is overworked and we get frustrated at the wait and we snap at him, so he spits in our food. Johnny's father is verbally abusive, so when Johnny goes to school, he bullies Sam, which merely perpetuates the cycle of abuse, right? So we need to find a way to break the cycle. And that, whatever forgiveness is, it begins here. So forgiveness, I think, is the action of giving up resentment and the demand for compensation or retaliation. It's the action of giving up resentment and the demand for compensation or retaliation. And perhaps there's a way to incorporate a slight uh, addendum to that, which may be that it's the action or process of giving up resentment and the demand for compensation or retaliation. Because often what we'll find, we'll talk about this more in our third session, is that forgiveness is not usually a singular event. It's something that has to be done multiple times or something that, that, that continues to happen, right? Um, it's not, most of us can't just say, oh, I forgive you and it's done, right? Um, we might want to do that, but that's not how it usually works. Now, forgiveness in the, going back to a moment in our being stuck in cycles, what that means is that forgiveness can't come from us. It has to come from someone or somewhere else. And that source for the Christian has to be God, right? The story of Jesus is what breaks those cycles of violence. 
He's free from original sin, and he shows us how to be human. Of course, one thing we find is that when cycles of violence are disrupted, they almost always lash out as a sort of death knell, right? People don't like it when cycles of violence are stopped. I mean, my favorite story in the New Testament, which may not have even been originally written in the book of John, but it certainly is in John now, is the story of the woman caught in adultery where they, they want to stone her, and Jesus writes in the dirt, and it causes all of them to leave, right? And you think, you know, Jesus is showing them how to show mercy. He's showing them how to love. He's showing them how to be human, right? So you think, they see this example, and you go, oh man, why can't they just be like Jesus? Well, what does it cause them to do? Instead of stone the woman, they do leave, but their new plan is how do we kill Jesus, right? He's disrupted this cycle of violence, and so that will, it will lash out uh, as a way to sort of protect itself. Jesus shows us a new way to be human, and he's killed. Roman Catholic Herbert McCabe once said that you haven't been fully human unless you've loved, but if you've loved, you will be killed. But that's the beauty of the rescue mission that Jesus was on. The world may lash out, but the gospel is always above that. And the world's violence can even be a means by which the gospel is perpetuated. I mean, think about the great martyrs of the faith. There's a great uh, letter that was written by the saints in Lyon, France, um, to the church uh, more centered in Europe. And, um, and, and it talks about this intense persecution that they're undergoing. And it talks about martyr stories where these saints are, are being killed. And the author of the letter talks about, you know, so-and-so was put um, on the stake to be burned, and in it we saw the cross, you know, she was praying for the forgiveness of all those who were burning her, you know, and, and that, that is really radical, isn't it? Um, so, so even though the world lashed out at the church through persecution, killing and torturing and being awful and horrible, that suffering became the, that blood that was spilled became the, the, the nutrients for the church to continue to grow and to flourish, right? Um, like we talked about today with the army of martyrs, praise thee in morning prayer. Now, Montague Brown is a scholar who has an article called St. Thomas Aquinas on human and divine forgiveness. And I think it's important here because it's going to set up the next two sessions to make a little bit of a distinction um, between different kinds of forgiveness, um, namely the source of forgiveness. So there is a forgiveness that comes to humanity from God, right? This is what we talk about when we talk about the cross um, and, and the whole plan of salvation, there is then another kind of forgiveness where we forgive one another as humans, right? They are definitely related, but there also are important distinctions that need to be made. So Montague Brown explains that in Greco-Roman thought, right, you have all these gods, right? And really the gods are just amplified humans. Um, in fact, they can be quite childish at times. They're not even always fully adult humans. They act like, you know, Jude and Rowan do when they're fighting over something, um, when forgiveness occurs in the myths, it is often really just a kind of indifference, right? They put aside the wrong, but that's sort of it. And there can be all sorts of reasons for putting aside a wrong that don't involve forgiveness in the way that we're talking about it, right? Um, it could be that it's just not worth the trouble, right? It's a small enough thing, eh, not a big deal to me. I'm, I, I have other important things to do, right? Um, and that, that often kind of seems to be what is going on with the, in the Greco-Roman stories. 
In Christian thought, forgiveness is very different. This is because our God is not indifferent to our plight, like the gods in the Greco-Roman mythology. As Christians, we understand that God is love. And just as we were once his enemies and he sought us out, so we should seek out those who are, in, who are our enemies and attempt to reconcile as best as possible. So in the pagan world, forgiveness is almost passive. Eh, it's fine. We'll move on. In Christianity, forgiveness is an active or at least proactive uh, thing. Romans 5.8, But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, we didn't ask to be forgiven, Christ died for us. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. So for the Christian, being able to forgive comes from the theological virtue of charity, love. And that virtue is infused in us by the Holy Ghost and is based on the example that God in Christ offers us. And we're going to talk a few, in a few minutes about why uh, God's forgiveness is a little bit different or looks a little bit different. Um, but but it, this will kind of wrap up our first session where we can establish that the antithesis of forgiveness is, is resentment. It's that anger. It's bitterness. It's holding a grudge against someone. And that resentment is ever-present for many in our world because we're living in an environment that's constantly polluted by sin. It's the water we swim in. And so forgiveness, then, is what happens when we release that resentment and the demands for retaliation or compensation. And this is only possible because while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So as we come to the end of our first session, uh, I wanted to open it for any questions. Does anybody have any questions or comments or concerns or complaints? I have a little plaque on my desk, and it says, forgiveness is giving up the right to punish the person who has hurt you. Mm. Forgiveness is the right to punish the person who has hurt you. Forgiveness is to give up the right to punish the person who's hurt you. Yes, absolutely. Yes, yes. Yes. Forgiveness is a gift we give ourselves. I like that. What does that mean exactly, do you think? It, it means that um, we, are, we are freeing ourselves from that resentment, from yes. bitterness, and letting it go. Absolutely. Because that's kind of the, the point of like the nuclear waste analogy, right? Is um, resentment is bad going both directions, right? It's not good for the person who is resentful and it's not good for the person who is resented right because socrates talks about this in his in his dialogue gorgias you know what we should want for ourselves and for others is an increase in justice to become a better person right i want to see all of you become better that's part of my job as a priest right but i also myself want to become better right that's that's why we pursue holiness and we do that together as a church, hopefully. Um, so if someone does a wrong, one of the reasons they need to be corrected, or at least they should be corrected, is because it's for their own good. You know, I mean, we do this with our kids, 
you know, Jude does something wrong, he gets in trouble for it. It's not because I'm mean, at least it shouldn't be because I'm mean, right? Or because I'm angry at him, right? It's because I recognize he needs to meet certain standards to flourish as a human being. And when he doesn't meet those standards, he needs to be reminded of what they are and pushed towards them, right? Um, and so uh, resentment kind of refocuses the, the, the issue, right? It's not about me getting better and you getting better. It's about me getting what I feel or perceive I deserve. Um, and, uh, and that can be very unhealthy um, way to think about it. And like I said, it, it becomes a point where there's no resolution that's possible even. Um, and so, yeah, it's good for us to forgive and it's good for the other person if we forgive. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. They may not even know that they've hurt us. Yeah. Or that you're still mad about something that happened years ago. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, how can they know if we don't tell them that something bothers us, right? And, and being able to confront someone, at least in a loving manner, is a sign that, that you are interested in their betterment and your betterment, right? But, but harboring it in, uh, that really does develop into something unhealthy and bad. Donna? Mm, forgiving yourself. Yeah, that is tough. So you mean, um, you know, if you do something wrong, maybe you say, I know I did that wrong and you're harder on yourself than you might be on others. Is that kind of what you mean or what? So you sort of internalized from the other person, oh, that was my fault, you know, or something like that. Right, right, right. No, I totally understand. I think this is one area where the Christian practice of confession is really helpful because, um, I mean, you know, like we say during the Mass, um, you know, we make the confession, we receive the sort of general absolution, and then we hear those comfortable words, you know, hear what our Lord Jesus Christ saith, come unto me all ye that travail and are heavy laden, and I will refresh you. Um, so God loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to the end that all that believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The word is being spoken to us and, and part of our task, and, and it's a tough task, and like I say, it's all a process, is opening ourselves to receive that healing word so that we can let go of those feelings of guilt, especially in instances where 
it wasn't our fault necessarily. And, and sometimes we need to hear that from another person. It wasn't your fault. God forgives you. You know, God loves you. you know, those kind of things. And it's a process. It's hard. It, it doesn't happen overnight necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. David? Uh, another saying that I've heard is that an expectation is a resentment in waiting. Mm. An expectation is a resentment in waiting. I like that. <laughs> having been thinking about that, it seems that it's another pride thing. Mm-hmm. I've also heard that the difference between me and God is that God never wanted to be David. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. That, that bit about the resentment in waiting is I'm expecting things to turn out the way I want them. That's right. And we're advised to make requests to God mm. and finish them by, if it be your will. Yes, yes. It seems as though there's a sense in which expectations are good, right? A husband and a wife getting married have certain expectations of each other that are just basic, you know, that they'll take care of each other, that they'll love each other, etc. I mean, that's what the vows are, right? But it can also be true that you go into a marriage with very unhealthy expectations for the other person. They're going to clean up after me. They're going to make me all my meals. They're going to do all the you know, housework, all that kind of stuff, right? I mean, that's not, that's not good, right? So that's unhealthy. So then when they don't measure up, but what is that expectation based on, really? That expectation wouldn't be based on the sort of natural union between man and woman or the marriage right in the prayer book or anything. That's based on my expectations of what I deserve, which is often, yes, certainly uh, betrays a sense of pride. We don't begin a project without an expectation. Right. plan without an expectation. If you're open to the possibility that it's not going to turn out that way, then when it doesn't, you can respond in a healthy way. Yes. Instead of beating your head against the wall and getting angry. Yeah, expectations can be sort of a bludgeon for other people. I mean, this is kind of what Jesus is reacting to against the Pharisees um, throughout the uh, throughout the Gospels. He. he calls them blind guides and he, one of the things he says is you keep piling on these expectations onto these people to the point that it creates a weight that they can't even bear anymore you know um and so it's certainly possible to use to use um expectations in a very inhuman way to kind of beat the other person missy um, this whole discussion makes me think of the parable of the prodigal son yes and especially of the elder brother oh yes Absolutely. Um, Cauldron. I like that. That's a good description. The father tells him, you know, you have always been with me and I, I love you. And, and you don't know what happens with that elder child. Does he, does he take those words to heart? I, I don't know. You're absolutely right. Yes. Yes. Well, he's going to figure prominently in the next two sessions. That story will. Um, in fact, the, uh, the picture uh, that we used to advertise this was, I think, Rembrandt's Prodigal Son. Uh, and so that story is definitely at the heart of what we're going to talk about. The older brother is certainly, and, 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 you know, he doesn't have the problem of prodigality. So therefore he has no real patience for anyone who does, you know, it's, it's that inability to understand and meet people where they're at. You know, what he should have done is understood what the father understands, which is that it's good that he's back. (laughs) But the older brother can't do that. And um, 
that that certainly does go back to expectation and bitterness absolutely and pride yes definitely pride yes that's the whole point right look what i've done i haven't left you i've been here the whole time anything else let's take a 10 minute break and so we can come back here at 10 o'clock and start our second session about god forgiving us